Welcome to this peer voice activity. To access the entire activity, including downloadable slides, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash DVE. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Novo Nordisk AS. Welcome to this Peer Voice Talks on Obesity. This activity comprises two presentations featuring Professor Samuel Seydoux and Professor Donna Ryan. At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. Hello, this is Samuel Seydoux from the University of Leicester. Uh, welcome to this activity entitled The Power of the Primary Point of Contact, Taking Obesity from Obstacle to Opportunity. Welcome to the first presentation, Obesity, a Chronic Disease State and Not a Character Flaw. So approximately 13% of the global population have obesity. It is a real pandemic that is on the rise across the globe. Uh, more importantly, uh, obesity is not only the underpinning major condition for uh, a lot of other chronic con conditions, it is actually being recognized by WHO for uh, a few decades now to be a chronic disease in and of its own right. Obesity represents one of the major public health uh, emergencies of our time. So let's go into this in more detail by considering the case of Karen. Karen is a 48-year-old nurse. She's married with four children. She comes to you, uh, her primary care clinician, for her annual checkup. And Carrie says to you, it's really hard for me to keep uh, going on with various projects. I have just had to put my dad in an assisted living. And Carrie's husband has also mentioned that Carrie is tending to neglect herself, focusing on everybody else but her. Okay, you've done your assessment and you realize that Karen has a BMI of 34. She weighs 89.8 kilograms or 198 pounds. Her blood pressure is 130 over uh, 85. And Karen has an A1C uh, of 5.8 in the pre-diabetic range. Question is, why did Karen, somebody who has a BMI of 34, present talking about her concern about pre-diabetes and likelihood of developing diabetes, and she didn't mention anything about obesity. In some cases, there are a lot of other occurrences who would have mentioned other chronic conditions and not the obesity. Other chronic conditions such as cardiovascular disease, hypertension, dyslipidemia, sleep apnea, uh, gallstones, menstrual irregularities, osteoarthritis, and some cancers. All these are conditions uh, that obesity uh, can predispose to. And patients are more comfortable talking about these long-term conditions rather than the obesity itself. So the reason why Karen might present talking about diabetes or cardiovascular disease or cancer or any of those other conditions and not the obesity itself is that there is uh, a long-term uh, bias from healthcare professionals on people who have obesity. So in a study of over 2,600 patients who are obese or overweight, uh, they were asked to assess whether healthcare professionals that they encountered had any bias towards them. And in that study, 69% of doctors, 46% of nurses, and 37% of dietitians uh, uh, were noted to have some bias against patients living with obesity. What is the impact of these bias against people living with a condition? 
uh, they will have less trust in the healthcare providers. They'll be less likely to attend uh, healthcare uh, for screening or indeed getting interventions to help their conditions. And for that reason, uh, they will get poorer outcomes and more likely to avoid future encounters with healthcare professionals. So let's go back to Karen. If you do everything right um, and you manage to engage with Karen, you would uh, do things like uh, getting their A1C measured, uh, getting their lipid profile, weighing, get, weighing them and getting their waist circumference. You will also assess their mental health, joint problems, sleep problems, and uh, you know, uh, assess them for a gastroesophageal uh, reflux disease. You will also want to go into detail and ask Karen why she's putting on the weight. And is there any history uh, lifestyle issues, the diet, the physical activity, and what has worked in the past or did not work. A lot of patients, uh, such as Karen, would have tried a lot of other interventions, lifestyle interventions first, and have failed. So we need to go into the details of this to ensure that we know the root cause of all the problems. When you encounter somebody like Karen, what you realize is that a lot of clinicians would first assume that it is a very straightforward case. That obesity is simply a case of uh, people uh, uh, eating inappropriate things or poor lifestyle choices, not physically active. However, it's not just obesity, uh, which is as a result of poor lifestyles. There are other conditions such as cancer, cardiovascular disease, dementia, etc., etc. When patients have all these other conditions, they do not face any stigma at all. However, when they have obesity, uh, they face a stigma. Nevertheless, all of these conditions, including obesity, are caused by lifestyle choices. And so there must be a reason why uh, patients who are obese are stigmatized. So it is up to us as a society to change our deeply held societal beliefs that people with obesity simply lack the willpower or just need to eat less and exercise more. But rather, we should appreciate that there is, uh, there, there is a very complex interplay of genetics, physiology, environment, and early life experiences that all predispose to patients uh, getting obese. So if you want to do this properly, you've got to appreciate that there are some barriers of communications that exist when you are in the consultation. Things that have been cited include times, uh, things such as time constraints, uh, a lack of coverage of obesity management in most health, uh, healthcare systems, lack of training in obesity treatment and counseling, fear of offending the patients. You don't want to use terms like you are obese or you are fat. And in the absence of using those words, uh, people really struggle to get more appropriate terms that they can use to describe the patients without making them offended. So we don't even know how to start the conversation. So how do you actually do this? Well, first, first of all, you've got to recognize that obesity is a chronic disease. It's not just leading to chronic diseases. It's on, on its own a chronic disease. We've got to assess patients, um, their living uh, conditions, um, and take appropriate measurements, identify the root causes uh, of the problem, and any complications or barriers that could hinder uh, their, their management. Have a detailed discussions uh, about their core uh, treatment options that they, 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 you know, that would work for them. And, and learn to set goals for this patient. Let them focus on the goals 
and get regular reviews with these patients so that you can check and see whether they're achieving the goals. And if they are not achieving the goals, you can set more smart, uh, achievable goals uh, for, for these patients. So how do you start the conversation? Avoid blaming the patients. Let the patient appreciate that they are not in this alone. I started off by saying that 13% of the global population have obesity. So that's millions of people across the world. So let the patient feel like it's not their fault. Okay, it is an epidemic. Listen to the patient's concerns. Don't dismiss their concerns. Take it seriously. Avoid using offensive terms such as obese or fat in the conversation and be very empathetic. A lot of the time, healthcare professionals do not offer uh, the, the, the counseling or uh, weight control uh, advice that patients need. A study uh, uh, conducted uh, recently uh, in, on the NA database uh, uh, showed that only 40% of adults with overweight or obesity um, had reported having received counseling from their healthcare professionals. And um, only about half of these patients who received a counselor reported actually taking any action at all uh, about this. And so when you want to do this, uh, you've got to do this with the patient in the middle of the decision-making process. It's got to be a shared decision. Start with the patient and ask them where they really want to be in what time and let that decision, that goal setting, be smart. Let them decide what is appropriate for them and how they can achieve it. You've got to be supportive in the shared decision-making. Don't impose a target on them that they cannot achieve. Uh, once they own the, the, the target setting, you support them uh, and the patient be the expert of the condition because they're living with it. And you just facilitate the decision-making process. Review that uh, uh, you know, a few months' time and see whether they're achieving it. If they're not achieving it, uh, refine the targets with them and then uh, review again another few months' time. So in summary, uh, obesity uh, is a chronic disease. It's not just an antecedent uh, to other chronic disease. Patients who have obesity face a lot of stigma from healthcare professionals. And this means that they are unlikely to seek help. Effective communication strategies with patients can improve uh, management of obesity. And shared decision-making is what we should aim to use uh, uh, to achieve this effective decision-making process. Thank you very much for watching. Please join us next presentation by my esteemed colleague, Donna Ryan. Hello everyone. I'm Donna Ryan from the Pennington Biomedical Research Center in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I wanna thank Samuel for that insightful talk. Let's move on to talk number two. And the title of this talk is The Wait Is Over, Novel Opportunities in Weight Management. And let's begin by going back to our patient, Karen. Karen developed obesity because she had genetic risk and was exposed to en environmental factors that drive obesity in persons at risk. So some of those factors include the pregnancy weight gain that Karen experienced, and she developed prediabetes. Most patients with prediabetes will progress to type 2 diabetes, but prediabetes is not a benign condition. The origins of microvascular and macrovascular disease begin with the dysglycemia of prediabetes. So the risk of kidney disease, retinal disease, cardiovascular diseases, all are increased in individuals with prediabetes, albeit not as much as those with, with diabetes itself, but still individuals with prediabetes 
are at increased risk for all the macrovascular and microvascular complications that go along with prediabetes. So if we can go intervene early in Karen, we have the opportunity to prevent those downstream complications, the development of diabetes, the development of macrovascular and microvascular complications of diabetes, and we can also affect the other complications of obesity. So prediabetes is actually a very good window of opportunity to intervene with good weight management. We know that relationship between weight loss and improvements in glycemia is very tight. I'm showing you data from the Diabetes Prevention Program, or DPP. We know in DPP the average weight loss was 6.7%, and that was associated with a 65% reduction in progression from prediabetes to type 2 diabetes. Well, this data is a different sort of analysis. And as you can see, with 10% weight loss, we essentially minimize the progression from impaired glucose tolerance to type 2 diabetes. So 10% weight loss, we can really affect conversion from prediabetes to type 2 diabetes. That's, that is an achievable weight loss goal for many patients. The good thing to know about weight loss is that it doesn't matter what the initial BMI is. The same amount of weight loss, the same proportional weight loss, will have the same effect on many risk factors. So this is looking at data from the, from the Look Ahead study. In this study, individuals with, with type 2 diabetes underwent an intensive lifestyle intervention. The message here is that modest weight loss can improve glycemia, blood pressure, lipids, and it occurs, that improvement occurs in all classes of BMI. So just because our patients are heavier doesn't mean they need to lose a greater proportion of weight. So what we're learning about weight loss is that weight loss has great benefits in all of the chronic diseases we're managing in our practices. Good weight management is good chronic disease management. Why haven't we been successful in implementing weight loss as a strategy for our patients? Why haven't we been successful in our primary care practices? Well, the problem with intensive lifestyle intervention is that it takes a lot of patient contact and this is not something that we can easily do in the routine of a primary care practice. So we know that if we can deliver 12 or more sessions of intensive lifestyle intervention around diet, physical activity, and changing behaviors, we can achieve on average 5% or more weight loss. But these sessions are about an hour apiece, and that's very difficult to deliver in the routine of a primary care practice. In fact, there have been no studies that show the delivery of this intensive lifestyle inter intervention is effective in the routine of primary medical care. So lifestyle alone, although it can work for some patients, it's very often not enough. Weight regain is another special challenge. So even though patients succeed with initial weight loss, almost all patients will regain that weight within two years. Many patients need medications to help them achieve and sustain weight loss. 
Medications work through appetite to help patients better adhere to their lifestyle change intentions. So what's going on with, with our availability of medications? We know with intensive lifestyle intervention, we can get that five, 7% weight loss on average. And on the other end of the spectrum, if we refer our patients to bariatric surgery, we usually get on average about 30% weight loss, really an excellent amount of weight loss to impact those chronic diseases. But in between, we'd like to have some treatments that produce effective weight loss safely. We have older medications, Arlistat, Naltrexone and Bupropion, Fentramine, Topiramate, and Liraglutide. Recently, semaglutide 2.4 milligrams has been approved for chronic weight management, and it produces on average 15 to 17% weight loss, about 14% more weight loss than would be achieved with, with lifestyle alone. That's excellent. And coming down the pipeline, we have other medications in development that are going to produce even more uh, weight loss. So if we look at the amount of weight loss that we can currently achieve with our available weight loss medications, we see this sort of picture. So what I'm showing you here is the average weight loss that's been achieved with ventorintopyramate, naltrexone bupropion, liraglutide, semaglutide, and a new medication that's under review by the FDA, terzepatide. It's approved for diabetes, but not yet for weight management. Both groups, the medication group and the placebo group, were receiving an intensive lifestyle intervention. So what we're really seeing is the additional weight loss that can occur with medications on top of a lifestyle intervention. So as you can see, with our older medications, we got between five and 9% greater weight loss than we would achieve with lifestyle intervention alone. But with semaglutide, we've got 12 to 14% greater weight loss. And with terzepatide, not yet approved, about 20% greater weight loss than lifestyle intervention alone. So we're entering an era where we have tools in our toolbox to help our patients achieve more weight loss sufficient to improve their chronic disease profiles. And as long as patients take those medications, that weight loss can be sustained. So how would we apply this to Karen? Well, Karen has prediabetes and metabolic syndrome. She's an ideal candidate for setting a goal to achieve at least 10% weight loss. And our goal would really be around a health, a health endpoint. We'd like to see her normalize that hemoglobin A1C. So our treatment objective would be at least 10% weight loss to, and to follow the hemoglobin A1C, hoping to achieve a normal one. So we're gonna set a weight loss goal at the first 12 weeks, the first three months of 5%. At six months, we'd like to see 10%. At 12 months, we'd like to see 10% or even more weight loss. So we're gonna to talk to Karen about this and through shared decision-making, we're gonna choose one of those medications to help with her diet and physical activity plan. The preferred pharmacologic options for Karen would be to take either semaglutide 2.4 milligrams or liraglutide 3 milligrams. Um, these, both of these medications are GLP-1 receptor agonists. Um, the way they work has an effect not only on weight, 
but also on glycemia. So they would be my preferred choices in this case. Let's sum it up now. So primary care providers are the cornerstone of obesity management and should make weight management a core component of their clinical practice. All of the chronic diseases that we're treating could be better managed with good weight management. Although lifestyle intervention can improve risk factors, we know it's very difficult to succeed at lifestyle intervention in primary care practices. And although surgical treatment has been shown to reduce cardiovascular events and to improve patient's health, not every patient is a candidate for bariatric surgery. We need to consider newer pharmacologic agents such as the GLP-1 receptor agonists like loragotide and semaglutide because they've been shown to be effective in reducing weight in obese and overweight patients and also have the added benefits of improving glycemia. So clinicians can benefit from clinical recommendations to talk to their patients about including medications to help them achieve their lifestyle goals. Thank you very much. This has been an activity published by Peer Voice.